0: Welcome to the Voices of Aging podcast, where you learn more about aging through experts. We are the Aging Studies Interdisciplinary Group, or ASIC, a student-led collaborative organization for the study of aging at the University of Minnesota. Every episode, we feature guests working in different aging-related areas, and they share their experiences and wisdom. We release two episodes every month, and you can find us on Apple Podcasts. Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in to learn more about aging every time you hit play.
1: This is Madeline with the Voices of Aging podcast. Today, we are so lucky to have two guests, Dr. Katie Spencer and Dr. Kristen Mark. Dr. Spencer is an assistant professor, licensed psychologist, and interim director of training at the Institute for Sexual and Gender Health. She is also the co-director of mHealth Fairview Comprehensive Gender Care Behavioral Health. Her primary clinical practice is working with transgender and gender non-conforming adolescents and adults, women's sexuality and sexual health, and LGBTs' sexuality and well-being. Dr. Mark is a sex and relationship researcher and educator. She is the current Jocelyn Elders Endowed Chair for Sexual Health Education and Professor in Family Medicine and Community Health at the University of Minnesota Medical School's Institute for Sexual and Gender Health. She is affiliate faculty at the Kinsey Institute with a national and international reputation as a sexual scientist and educator. Her research program centers around sexual well being, specifically the maintenance of sexual and relationship satisfaction and sexual desire in long-term relationships, sexual function and dysfunction, sexual trauma, and sexual desire discrepancy. Dr. Mark, Dr. Spencer, thank you so much for joining me today.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me. Pleasure, yeah.
1: Let's just jump in to kind of some basic information to start here. What are some maybe common or expected changes in sexuality and sexual experiences
3: with age? Um, Okay, common or expected experiences with age. Well, you know, as we get older, our bodies change. Um, You know, so I was just giving a talk at a retirement community um, for sex after 60. And, you know, I had the audience actually sort of popcorn, like tell me things that they had noticed. And the things that came up were just, um, you know, like, Body shape and size, or not feeling as, uh, you know, not having as much energy, you know, sort of some mobility challenges, like feeling more stiffness or just, you know, having to stretch more before doing physical activity. Um, people mentioned like chronic pain issues that can arise sort of as you get older. And then, like with um, sexual functioning, sometimes there's changes in lubrication, there can be changes in like sort of genital like skin shape, uh, uh, you know, sort of different function, like erections can change over time, you know, so and then also our sexual desire and sexual interest can fluctuate, like as we age and just over time as well. So those are things that people bring up. And then also, I think as we get older, there's other um, medical things that can come up around just like uh, blood pressure, or like just, uh, you know, things like that, that can really affect people's, not just like, the actual physical activity of like having sex, but also sort of your self-concept around that. So that's another thing around aging that I find is kind of really speaks to the the biopsychosocial aspect of sexuality. So, you know, it's not just like there's medical, physical changes that happen with our bodies, but like kind of socially, like what we expect around like sex and aging as we get older and then psychologically how we experience ourselves and our relationships to others. So Those are some of the things that people have brought up to me. Adam, what do you think?
2: Yeah, I, I would ag- totally agree with that. And also add, I think that because of those sort of social expectations are also just the stigma surrounding aging and sexuality in general in our culture. People often don't feel comfortable bringing up concerns around this. And that can be a real issue when, say, they do get a new diagnosis from their physician and they don't know what to ask or how to ask questions about how that might impact their sexual lives um, or like they don't feel like their physician is comfortable hearing that or get it in answering that question. And so I think there's a lot of barriers to being able to get information about this that really also impacts how sexual functioning might change.
1: I think that's the perfect segue to my next question. So from the healthcare provider side of things, what are chronic conditions that might come up for a patient that may contribute to the way an older adult Might have or enjoy sex that, from the provider perspective, we should be aware of in order to best support patients in that area?
2: Yeah, so I mean, lots of different health issues. I mean, anything from like, um, the progression of diabetes getting worse over over time or through age to like breaking your hip and after a fall, right? Like there's a whole range of different things. Um, as Katie was mentioning earlier, like blood pressure concerns can certainly impact erectile function. Um, and I think across the board, your body changing being able to be open to shifting the script around like what sex means to you is pretty critical in getting through any of these issues, no matter what type of health issue arises. Other specific health issues that I'm thinking of is like also even death of a spouse or death of a long-term partner, really impacting how you view sex or like what you might value in the sex that you're having can can throw a real wrench in people's like idea of what sex might look like for them as they age um yeah would you
3: add some others oh yeah well i was just thinking that i mean part of that question is what i've heard from clients a lot is just They want their healthcare providers to ask them about sex and talk to them about sex. So a lot of different medications have sexual side effects, and sometimes those are just glossed over or not talked about at all. And so then patients are kind of left having to figure that out on their own or like Googling and like not having like the information that they need and just having having a provider ask about it or open up a space to talk about sexuality. And I think especially for older adults, and I mean, I think maybe we'll talk about this more too, especially like older adults who are part of like the LGBT community and sexual minorities and like not making assumptions about like what their sex lives and what their relationships look like. Because I think that's another barrier for people being able to ask the questions that they need to and get the information that they need. And yeah, that idea of like expanding, I think it's as healthcare providers, the best thing that we can do is like educate ourselves and expand our ideas of what is sexuality. Because I think when I've gone out into the community and like done different talks and listened to people, like there's this idea of this like kind of linear goal-directed sex that is very penis and vagina focused. And so people are like, well, if I can't get an erection or if I'm having lubrication difficulties, then I guess I don't get to be a sexual person. And that's not true. You know, so that's just true for everybody at any age and any type of relationship and relationship with self is that, you know, we all can access like sexual pleasure and that can expand in lots of different ways. It doesn't have to be generally focused. Like, you know, we have our whole bodies, we have our minds, we have like many things, you know, and different entry points for how we can be sexual. And so I think for providers not to be so focused because healthcare can be so focused on reproduction and on disease and like not so much focused on like experience and pleasure and like expanding those ideas of things that like being able to talk about that and make suggestions for how to get resources for that. So educating yourself is a big part of that.
1: Thinking about the ways that certain chronic conditions might cause limitations to maybe how someone previously experienced sex, what are maybe examples of modifications that you've heard of or recommended that can help to address those limitations?
3: Gosh, well, again, not to just reference, I just gave this talk last week, but I I had this slide where I had like a bunch of different things and part of it was based on just anecdotal, like conversations that I've had with clients and sort of things that I've learned sort of in community, but also like from some of the research that we have. But on that slide, I had number one, like um, for people who are having some of the physical stuff about like joints and like maybe hip pain or just like mobility stuff, like there is a variety of, I call it sex furniture, but that's maybe, yeah. (laughs)
2: Yeah. That's what I call it too. Or like sex (laughs) sex wedges.
3: Yeah. So they have like wedges and pillows and like, I mean, you can also kind of create this on your own. Like if you have, you know, but like that really help like support like the hips or like get in different positions so that you're not having to hold yourself like in a weird position that might sort of cause some pain after a while. Um, So I'm a big fan of that. I'm a huge fan of lube. (laughs) <laughs> and across the lifespan, lube, the lifespan. Yes. lube is always your friend. Yes.
0: Um,
3: and I, you know, there's also um, information about like what different kinds of lubricants are good for different sexual behaviors, but also for your body. Like, some people prefer like water based lubricants, there's also silicone based lubricants that can like last longer, anyway. So, just doing some research about that. Um, sex toys, you know, like vibrators, dildos, um, prostate stimulators, like, there's all sorts of different things that also could be very pleasurable and there's adapted ones that so if you have like arthritis or like if you you know have some um, just with your hands you know that can be held or like you, you know can sort of support that as far as um, providing like pleasure and stimulation but not like sort of tiring different parts out and then another thing that um, I had found in the literature is just that massage can be very helpful. Um, movement in all sorts of ways, so like dance or yoga or things like that can also just help you like get in your body, um, have some of that fluidity of movement, just like with touch. Those are all supportive things that maybe people don't think of. People think of like sex furniture and lube maybe, but not like some of those other things that can be like really supportive. So I don't know. Yeah, Kristen, would you add to that?
2: Um, All of those things. And then also I think we have learned There's this researcher, Peggy Kleinplatz, she's based in Canada and she's done a lot of work on like optimal sexuality. And what she found is that the people who were experiencing like these optimal sexual experiences were all much older and like much further along in the age continuum. And in a lot of ways, one of the reasons that that was the case is that they had really worked to redefine that script of what sex meant to them. And also I think being, so, so a tool that can be used is like being open to that and also being open to like different things meaning foreplay and different things signaling what foreplay is or like the way that you might initiate sex and how that might change over time based on having to incorporate some of these devices or incorporate some of these aids that can really help and so some of her participants in her research have like just noted these really funny things like one of them I, i'll never forget this story of this couple who she interviewed, where they would have like these naked weekends and they would go um, to the grocery store beforehand to like buy all of the food that's really easy to prep. And so, like, that part of their journey of that weekend that they were reserving for that was such foreplay for them. And like, to get into that mental space, it allowed them to kind of, I mean, this, these people were retired and they had more time and were excited to get into that space for a full weekend or for a full few days. And I think that was really striking that going grocery shopping for this couple became a real foreplay of an activity in a way that you might not expect. And I think being open to that and and being open to changing that script is a critical tool for people to have and equip themselves with.
1: I love that story. I think that's a great example of being flexible um, with what foreplay means and uh, adapting that with your current lifestyle. Yeah. Yeah. So changing gears a little bit, a common misconception that I've heard or sort of a pattern that I've seen is that people tend to be a little bit less concerned about STDs with age. And so this is probably, there's an obvious answer to this question, but are STDs actually less prevalent with age?
2: The ability to get an STI is not lower with age or anything. I think that when we look at across the lifespan, if we look at population data of what group of people have more STIs or are diagnosed with an STI at a given age, it's not going to be in the older population. However, that doesn't mean that you cannot get an STI in that age group, right? So certainly protection barrier methods are, are very important, especially when fluid bonding is involved. And I think it easily gets forgotten because of reproductive years being behind you. And so we get sort of these messages that safer sex is really just all about preventing pregnancy. And once that's no longer an issue, people sometimes forget about that, um, so maybe that's where some of those ideas come from. And I know that there's been like headlines ac- over the years of these places, uh, you know, like in Florida, the what is it called, the that uh, community, really large community. My parents' friends go there. I can't remember what it's called. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> and there's just like
3: STIs.
2: Yeah, like- it's <laughs> like there's all these headlines about you know fastest growing STI rate, the aging population. And it's like, that's not actually true when you take a look at the full population and the full picture. But there still does need to be protection in place if you're engaging in sex, especially if you're engaging in sex with multiple partners or one of the partners is engaging in sex with multiple partners. Yeah, those, you need to be careful with that. Yeah.
3: Well, and I think it really speaks to like some of the the social and generational cultural differences. So one of the things that in just working with seniors and elders is that, you know, people really speak about what they were socialized with as far as like expectations around sex. And like, there's been a lot of changes with different generations about how we talk about sex, our knowledge about STIs, how comfortable it is to talk about multiple partners or not, you know, so like just the communication skills to negotiate safer sex is really different generationally. So I think that's something to think about and how, there could be just some discomfort and avoidance of even introducing that. And then you're also, if like also safer sex was really reproduction focused, then maybe you're in like STAs are this very embarrassing, shameful thing. So like, why would you, you couldn't ask someone about it anyway. So I think as providers and sex educators, it's good for us to keep that in mind and also helping people build the skills and like normalize just like, sexual communication that is positive of how to do that because it is it is a skill set to be able to talk about it.
2: And, and we were talking earlier about, um, you know, physicians not asking about sexual function issues or about like concerns around sexual pleasure. Same thing is true when you're doing a physical that can very quickly get skipped over and the test STI testing can so easily get skipped over if the physician's not willing to or the medical provider is not willing to kind of ask about those things as they would someone in a younger population due to these assumptions that are made about aging and sexuality that are totally inaccurate.
1: Um, Dr. Spencer, you've already touched on this a little bit, and this is a huge topic. We could have a completely separate discussion just about this, but what are some of the unique challenges faced by older adults who identify as a part of a sexual and gender minority group?
3: Yeah, well, I started a a series with Rainbow Health, which is an LGBT advocacy organization in Minnesota, um, specifically addressed it talking about sex and sexuality for LGBT older adults, because, I mean, there's a whole host of issues. One is just there's a scarcity of resources, you know, or like spaces for people to be able to meet and talk to each other and like support um, just relationship and sexual health. There's also, you know, I think again, those generational differences. So for a lot of LGBT older adults, they might have like come out or been in a time where there was less community connection, less support for LGBT people. And so. At a event I was recently at, someone talked about it's like coming out again, you know, like trying to connect or maybe even if you've been single for a while and then you start dating again and then it's like you're in like, let's say you're in an elder care facility and you have a partner and like it's a pretty like... Heteronormative space, like that could also bring up like some other older trauma that people have experienced. In particular, working with transgender older adults who maybe have transitioned later in life, finding community has been really hard. If you have like meeting other trans older adults, number one, like people often feel alone. Number two, if you've been a part of a community either like as a cisgender person, like a cisgender lesbian, and maybe you transitioned um, to be a trans masculine person, like as you're older, maybe the lesbian community is really unwelcoming and you're not there. And then like, where are you finding partners who then like recognize your gender identity now? It just feels so challenging. And then this is true, I think for all older adults, there aren't really like using dating apps, which I think like people use a lot now in current times to meet people aren't very accessible to older folks. And then, if they are, there's one called I think Our Time. It's super heteronormative, so like it's, there aren't really LGBT options on there. Um, and then, yeah, I think having to access healthcare that is supportive to like sexual health. You know, your providers might not ask you about it. They might make assumptions, so then you're sort of closeted. Also, might not understand sort of what your sexual practices are. So there's a, it's all the things that happen for younger LGBT folks in our healthcare systems, and like the stigma and barriers that we understand for that, like kind of exacerbated for older folks. And then adding on the social isolation piece, which um, can really impact mental health. Um, So I think being able to have spaces for people to connect is a, a huge importance. So we've talked
1: about, you know, providers in healthcare settings needing to get better about bringing up sex with patients of all ages. What are some other things that come to mind when you think about combating ageism and addressing the commonly held belief that older adults are not sexual?
2: I think one thing that I always like to bring up is, do you want to be sexual as you age, <laughs> you know? And just, it's like this denial of this group of people that you will once be. <laughs> Hopefully, if you're lucky, you'll get to be them, you know? And I think that really trying to have the ability to sort of like, it's it's not quite empathy, but it's like this, like you've got to be able to acknowledge that we all age. And that sex is such an important part of our overall well-being and like sexual pleasure is such a joy to get to experience in life and why would you want that to decrease as you age like if anything i think it should be increasing and the lack the like sort of societal lack of acknowledgement of that is is really kind of striking given that we do all age if we're lucky and that is You know, you only increase in resources and time as you age, too, for the most part. I mean, obviously not everyone, but um, for the most part, we increase in those things. And yes, our health may be deteriorating in different ways or we may be experiencing struggles in different ways. But there's also a lot of research to show that sexuality, um, women's sexuality, particularly cis women's sexuality around increase in pleasure, with age and you get to know your body better. And there's all of these, you know, similar societal stigmas around women's sexual pleasure that begin to kind of untangle themselves as you age that I think benefits the experience of sexual pleasure for everyone involved. And those things are wonderful. And I think acknowledging that pleasure is a really positive aspect and can also be you know, when you are going through health issues or if you're struggling with aging in some way, what a nice escape to be able to like experience sexual pleasure and be in your body in a way that feels really good when maybe a lot of the things that you're going through actually don't feel great. So I I think those are some of the reasons that we need to rid ourselves of this stigma, but yeah, that takes time and societal shift and that's, yeah, difficult
3: to do. But I think, I mean, as healthcare providers and people, you know, well, and maybe just everyone, everyone should do this, but like, just if we, like unpacking our own sexual ageism and like unpacking, you know, I think um, Lucy Fielding is a author who wrote Transsex and like, she talks about erotic privilege and like this idea, like, you know, so that really, We tend to think of, I think it was like 18 to 35 is like the age range that people think is the most sexual. And then also that um, it's also tied to like a lot of other like systems of oppression, you know, all the things about like race and class and like body size, like who gets to be sexual and who gets to be desirable. So like unpacking our own sort of like what we eroticize and why and age really fully falls into that. Um, And so I agree with everything that Kristen is saying, you know, I I see it as an investment in my own aging process, because even just someone as a queer woman in my like mid forties already, and who's not on like a normative, like if you're also, it's like the normative, like partnership path. So like, as people get older, like maybe you had a partner who passed away maybe you've been divorced, maybe you're interested in polyamory or like, maybe you don't want to get married. That doesn't mean that you can't be sexual. So like unpacking like all these social norms about who gets to be sexual and how and why, and also what bodies are desirable, all of that will like, you know, all bodies Deserve and have the right to access sexual pleasure, and like there, that is possible. And if we expand the idea of sexual pleasure out of this sort of normative, linear, like penis and vagina, you kiss, you make out, you do heavy petting, then you have penetrative sex, and then one person orgasms, maybe two, you know. (laughs) Like, but there's all sorts of ways to access pleasure that you are gonna do yourself a service, you're gonna do other people in your life a service, and you're gonna do your patients a service too. So. So yeah, I think really challenging the sexual ageism piece is it's like one link in this chain of all these beliefs that normative, like dominant culture can kind of reinforce about who gets to have access to like sexual pleasure.
1: As we start to wrap up here, I want to provide you both the opportunity to share any final thoughts, any plugs, maybe any resources where listeners can go to learn more.
3: Oh, um well there is this uh I think it's called Sex After 60. Um I think it's Jane Fleisch. She's out of Widener, but she's great. Like she has like different speakers come on and like she's a sex therapist and sex educator. So that's a good thing to look at. You know, For healthcare providers, if you just could set aside a day to do a Google or a med search and like look at some of the actual literature that is about like sexual health and sexual pleasure and aging, that, I mean, you, that will be far and beyond. And I think also as if we're speaking specifically to medical providers, look beyond menopause look beyond like sort of like the reproductive arc especially when we're talking about um assigned female at birth people's like experiences I'm trying to think there's just come as you are is a book by Emily Nagoski like looking at some of these things that that do exactly what we're talking about as far as like expanding your idea of what is sexuality those would all be good resources to explore and honestly yeah it's like that shift And then also I think really meeting someone where they're at, as far as like, what are their like cultural beliefs and having some understanding of different generational norms um, is something that I've just found like really helpful in like connecting with others and like supporting their process around that. Cause we can't just come with our mindset and then like apply that to someone. You kind of have to learn where someone's at and like how do you meet them and like support them and like their goals.
2: Yeah, definitely. And then another book that's, um, so that study, those, those series of studies that I was talking about um, that really focused on aging and sexuality, there's a recent book that came out called Magnificent Sex, Lessons from Extraordinary Lovers. And it's, um, it details all of that research. It's by Peggy Kleinplatz and Dana Menard. And um, it, it details all of that research that was done by their team over the past couple of decades. And it's a really great resource as well. And then I think for medical providers, doing some of that work that Katie was mentioning around self-introspective, self-examination of your own biases. I think that there's not enough of that in medical school, um, any of it really, (laughs) meaningfully. So being able to, if you are serving populations and plan to work with populations knowing like what your own internal biases are around that and, and examining those and untangling them and figuring out how to be a better provider as a result. Dr. Spencer, Dr. Mark, thank you
1: so much for chatting with me. This has been wonderful. I know our listeners are going to get a lot out of this episode. Great. Thanks for having Great, us.
3: Thanks for having
2: us.
0: This podcast is brought to you by ASIC, the Aging Studies Interdisciplinary Group at the University of Minnesota. Follow Voices of the Aging and ASIC on social media for more information about the episodes and guests on the podcast and to learn more about us as a student group. See you next time.